Hi, I'm Jayan Sriram and welcome to In Focus, the Hindu's analysis podcast. Thanks for joining us. Before we start today, a quick announcement once again. The In Focus podcast is now available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. That's Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. You can search for In Focus by the Hindu and give us a follow or subscribe to us. And so on to today's episode which is on the Shabrimala case or issues arising from the Shabrimala case. In fact, I think a better way to refer to it now is probably Shabrimala plus plus because a lot of issues have now been lumped in along with the original one. So, just to give a little context, there was a batch of review petitions against an earlier 2018 verdict of the Supreme Court which allowed women in the 10 to 50 age group to offer worship at the Shabrimala temple. The fact that women in this age group were banned from entering the shrine earlier, the court had said, was discriminatory and violative of the right to equality. So when the court took up these review petitions it didn't really decide either way this was uh, in December rather it said that it wanted an authoritative pronouncement from a larger bench on some larger questions that arise so a nine judge bench is now going to deliberate on questions pertaining to the interplay between freedom of religion and other fundamental rights and the extent to which courts can probe whether a particular practice is essential to that religion or not All of these issues arise from the original Shabrimala one but the court says that it's not going to focus on the Shabrimala one alone but it's going to focus now on these these larger questions of law. I'm not a lawyer so I'm not going to try and explain more. I'm going to leave that to my guest today who's an actual lawyer. Surit Parthasarathy is an advocate at the Madras High Court and the frequent contributor to the Hindu. A couple of months ago Surit and I recorded an episode uh, on the original review petitions filed against the 2018 verdict. So I think also that it's good to listen to the two in tandem if you want more context. In the earlier one I think we had anticipated a rather more straightforward pronouncement by the Supreme Court and now we're left to ponder about how we got to this rather more abstract point in jurisprudence. So we linked to that previous episode of course and here's Surit once again. Welcome back to the podcast. Good to have you back with us. Thanks very much, Ant. A uh, pleasure to be here. You know, a couple of months ago, we spoke about the original Sabrimala review petition. We linked to that with this podcast, of course. But I think it's uh, safe to say that you know things didn't turn out the way that we both expected, and um, uh, we're now to more, let's say, abstract point in um, the jurisprudence relating to this case. So, uh, firstly, let's start with that. How do you think we got to this point? Yeah, so we got to this point really because of the judgment, if one can really call it that, in the review case against the original Shabrimala judgment. And uh, what that order does is to basically make a reference to a larger bench without actually finding that the original judgment in the Shabrimala case was wrongly decided. The order is really sort of, I think, set in motion a miasma of confusion because it doesn't, as I said, clearly hold that the judgment itself was wrong. but what it says is that there are important questions of law that arise which can also arise in other similar cases and therefore that a reference should be made to a larger bench for a conclusive decision and it lists out a set of questions which it believes could possibly arise and then keeps the review petition itself pending 
and that is how we are now before this nine judge bench the review judgment didn't directly refer the case to a bench of nine judges but the bench of nine judges has since been constituted by the present chief justice of india justice bobde and so the fact that we are um, it, the case is now before a nine judge bench is that is that normal do nine judge benches uh, decide questions of this uh, nature no, it's not normal at all i mean ordinarily one would expect a bench of five judges to decide this but because a reference or some sort of reference has been made by another bench of five judges to a larger bench one would have thought it would go to seven judges but i think the reason why it's gone to nine judges is because one of the earliest cases decided by the supreme court on this intersection between the right to freedom of religion and other fundamental rights and in terms of what the scope and ambit of the right to freedom of religion should be was a case that is popularly known as the shirur mat case which was decided by a bench of seven judges so when this nine judge bench ultimately begins to hear arguments it has this option open of even potentially overruling the shirur mat case and completely refashioning the jurisprudence on the right to freedom of religion so before we speak about the freedom of religion aspects that um, this case goes into how much of it do you think um, you know this point that we're at is because the previous bench that was hearing the sabri mala review petition um didn't really want to take a call on it quite a bit really i mean if you look at the dissenting judgment which is written by justice uh, rf nariman in the review petition and it's mm. really quite a stinging dissent he takes aim at the majority opinion it's written almost with righteous anger and he says that look the only point that we need to decide today is whether the original judgment was wrong or not and that too not merely wrong but wrong on its face right in the sense that not that there were two plausible interpretations that they could have come up with but that the interpretation that was ultimately arrived at was so palpably erroneous that it called for a review and the majority judgment doesn't hold it to be so it merely says that there are these questions that arise which could impinge on other cases that are pending before the supreme court and therefore that a reference should be made now what nariman says in his dissent is that look if these issues subsequently arise before subsequent benches of the court that bench can either choose to follow the shabrimala judgment or make a reference of its own to a larger bench so this this question therefore of making a reference to a larger bench was simply not before the supreme court at all in the review petitions so as to how it made it is really beyond comprehension and as i said this is what has led to all the confusion that's presently underway before the supreme court before the nine judge bench because what the nine judge bench has now said is that the various counsel can deliberate between themselves and try and whittle down the number of questions that require determination and then produce those before the court so before we get to the specific questions that might come up um you have an article in the hindu with uh, gautam bhatia who's another regular contributor and that actually is really fascinating and we link to that of course and that sets out some of the parameters here and it starts actually with a really fascinating case from karnataka that i think illustrates how difficult how much in difficult terrain we are when it comes to this question of uh, freedom of religion versus the right of everyone to live uh, with dignity so uh, can you just talk about that case first sure uh, see the the point that we were trying to make in the article is that this nine judge bench when it decides these questions its ultimate judgment isn't going to merely affect the shabrimala case but it's going to have a bearing on a number of different issues and one of those cases that is presently pending before the supreme court is a case concerning the validity of a practice known as madasnana which is practiced in a few temples in the state of karnataka now what this practice largely entails is this it entails 
a rolling over by members especially of scheduled castes and scheduled tribes but of other communities as well of plantain leaves that are left back with half eaten food and food eaten by brahmins so this is the practice that is followed and this is followed under a perpetuated belief that rolling over these half eaten plantain leaves that is plantain leaves left with half eaten food would cure these people who roll over these leaves of any skin diseases that they might have and would also rid them of all impurity so this is the large sort of belief that is uh, on which this practice is predicated now when this practice was challenged by a number of progressive groups before the karnataka high court the karnataka high court in 2012 issued a partial stay on the practice what it said was that the practice in its present form is on its face unconstitutional because it offends human dignity but if people were to voluntarily roll over these leaves and so long as they were not rolling over leaves containing half eaten food but merely you know uh, offerings that are made to the deity then there's nothing wrong with the practice itself and and to that extent the practice can continue now this thereafter reached the supreme court the supreme court remitted the matter back to the karnataka high court for a final decision and then when the matter again came up before the karnataka high court sometime in 2014 it modified its earlier interim order and essentially vacated the earlier interim order and said that at least for the time being there's nothing wrong with this practice until we take a final decision the practice can continue unabated now that order was again brought to the supreme court which then said look until we decide this on the face of it it's clear that this practice offends the equal status of individuals it quite clearly impinges on the rights to autonomy and dignity of certain groups and therefore until we take a final decision on this this practice will be stayed and these are the kind of uh, decisions or these are the kind of cases that could be affected when the supreme court ultimately makes a ruling on these various questions that are before it so right let's get into some of the legal provisions so right to freedom of religion um where does that appear in the constitution and what are what are the qualifications by which it is you know read down the right to freedom of religion is essentially guaranteed by articles 25 and 26 of the constitution 25 is a general right guaranteed to individuals while 26 is a community right what 25 guarantees is to every person an equal right to practice propagate etc whatever religion might be of their choice but makes that right subject to public order morality and health and also subject to other fundamental rights apart from that 25 also protects the state's power to regulate any secular activity that is associated with religion and also the state's power to make laws to bring about social reform and and for the purposes of bringing about social welfare including by way of throwing open hindu religious institutions to all characters of persons what 26 does is to protect the rights of communities and in specific the rights of religious denominations to manage their own affairs in matters of religion but once again the right under 26 is also made subject to public order morality and health so this is the broad sort of provisions that govern the right to freedom of religion under india's constitution but we must bear in mind that these provisions are sort of contained within the larger chapter on fundamental rights so therefore in order to really harmoniously interpret the interplay between the right to freedom of religion and other fundamental rights such as the right to equality or the right to human dignity we need to read the read the fundamental rights chapter as a whole and try and arrive at a sensible balance 
Okay, um, so that sensible balance, of course, is uh, the juncture that we're at, perhaps um, unintentionally. So, aside from um, the case in Karnataka, what are the other kinds of questions that arise uh, and that can now be clubbed in with this um, current hearing? Yeah, some of the other cases, some of the other issues that could arise are issues concerning entry of women into mosques, the excommunication of people who belong to the Dawoodi Bora community by the leader of the Dawoodi Bora community, then uh, issues such as female genital mutilation, again practiced in the Dawoodi Bora community, uh, the rights of Parsi women, and so forth. And um, can we just uh, go a little bit further into this concept of the lawyers themselves uh, coming together to decide what questions uh, the court will answer? To answer this question, we need to look at the judgment in the review petition. Because the judgment in the review petition, while making a supposed reference to a larger bench, doesn't actually spell out the issues that arise for consideration. It kind of makes a vague assertion that there, were, there are certain issues that could arise in other cases, which a larger bench might want to look into. And these issues that could arise, it says, are issues concerning the interplay between the freedom of religion under Article 25 and 26 and other fundamental rights, such as the right contained in Article 14. Then issues concerning the sweep of the expression, public order, morality and health. Issues concerning what role constitutional morality might play in achieving a balance between various fundamental rights. Then, the is then issues concerning the extent to which a court can play a sort of an ecclesiastical role in deciding what amounts to an essential or integral part of religion and what doesn't, and so on and so forth. So, the court in the Shabrimala review judgment case doesn't actually spell out the issues clearly. So, now the nine-judge bench felt that perhaps the lawyers could deliberate between themselves and look at what other cases might get impacted by the reference and based on the facts of those cases, potentially try and draft out a set of questions. In a sense, what you're saying though is that um, much of much of what the court is attempting to answer here, they will be doing in the abstract uh, without really knowing much of the facts of each of these cases? Yeah, I think this is a really deep problem in this whole reference because the, the court is essentially going to be deciding these questions in a vacuum, in the abstract as you say, without actually having a set of clearly delineated facts before it. And you know, it's really sort of first principles and, and most rudimentary principles of uh, judgment delivering, which is that judgments are decided on the basis of facts. There are a set of facts before a court. The court looks at what the law is and then applies the law to the set of facts and then comes out with a verdict. Whereas here, it's going to be deciding cases in the abstract without actually having clear delineated facts before it. And I think that could lead to all kinds of confusion in the future. And it's possible that we might not have a consistent jurisprudence emanating out of this nine-judge bench reference because you're going to then have the problem of applying what this court says in the nine-judge bench reference to future cases. And we've already seen this in some other cases. For example, when the court ruled, again, uh, through a judgment by nine judges, that there exists a fundamental right to privacy, we've seen the kind of confusion that it's wrought in subsequent judgments, such as the Aadhaar judgment, where it's then had to apply that judgment to a set of facts. So, judgments are best delivered when facts are before the court. And when cases are decided in the abstract, I don't think it, it, it really sort of amounts to some sort of an advisory opinion, as opposed to being a clear opinion uh, on the law. So, coming back to this question of uh, the balance that needs to be achieved here, and I'm quoting again from a line in uh, your article with Gautam. 
you, uh, the line is that, and I'm paraphrasing here, um, India is a pluralist and diverse nation. And so, you know, um, with that comes many questions about the right to religion and the right to, of communities to manage their own religion. But um, you also note that communities can also be a terrain for oppression and exclusion. So what I wanted to ask actually to end was that, um, you know, uh, what are the, what's the direction that the court can go in here? Can it sort of just affirm existing jurisprudence and sort of stay away from it? That's what's happened in the Karnataka case that you mentioned, that um, essentially they've not really, they've left that practice to be. Is that a way in which you might expect this to go or can there be something really different that the court does? I actually think, I mean, there, there are three options, I think, largely before the court. One is to affirm its existing jurisprudence, which involves an exercise of the court looking into what the essential or intrinsic practices of religion really are. And in, a, in undertaking this exercise, actually, what we'll find is that the court has, in fact, intervened in matters of religion more often than not, because it struck down a number of practices as not being essential to religion and therefore not being amenable to the protection guaranteed by Articles 25 and 26. For example, the court has struck down the practice of the Thandava dance, which is practiced by the Ananda Malkis community, by holding that this practice is not essential to that religion. During Chief Justice Gajendra Gatka's time, it struck down a number of practices across religions on the ground that those practices were essentially superstitious in nature, as opposed to being religious in nature. But And, and, and therefore, the court can really affirm this uh, doctrine and, uh, and, and say that this is the doctrine that it will continue to apply. And, it's, and that's not necessarily the worst possible result. But there are problems with this doctrine. And the problem is that what, you're essentially ha- what you essentially have when this doctrine is applied is a secular court interpreting matters of religion. And that can't quite sit easily with our idea uh, of uh, you know, a court exercising judicial review over ecclesiastical matters. right? So that's, the, uh, that's one of the problems with this doctrine. So the other two options that the court has is to say that it will do away with this doctrine and go merely by what the religious followers themselves believe to be matters of religion and leave it to them to decide how they want to practice their religion and completely stay away from any interference over these matters. That's another option that is available before the court. And this option naturally will give rise to a number of problems because as we know in a country such as us, and uh, Gautam and I refer to the statement made by Alladi Krishnaswami Iyer in the Constituent Assembly, where religion and social life are so inextricably linked, where people's civil rights, where their rights to dignity, equality, autonomy, are so sort of interwoven with the communities that they belong to, that should the court take an approach where it completely stays away from these matters, then what we will have is sort of a deepening of some of the inequalities that already exist within society. So I don't think that would be a good option for the court to choose. And the third option which we propose is an option which was cited by Justice Chandrachud in his concurring opinion in the Shabrimala case, which is to apply a principle of anti-exclusion. And this requires a tweaking of the essential practices doctrine. This requires the court to hold that it will not look into whether a practice is essential or not, that it would leave this exercise entirely to the religion itself. But if a practice violates fundamental rights, if it excludes individuals from the communities that they belong to, then the court would intervene and say that those practices ought not to be ought not to enjoy constitutional uh, protection. 
So, for example, when the Dawoodi Bora community says, or when the Dar of the Dawoodi Bora community says that a person has violated some tenet of that religion and therefore needs to be excommunicated from that religion, such a practice would violate the fundamental rights under Articles 14 and 15, and therefore the Dawoodi Bora community cannot take protection under Article 25 for that. Similarly, in the Shabrimala case, the followers, the community of followers of the religion cannot take protection under Articles 25 and 26 to say that their religion demands the exclusion of women and therefore that they will not permit women aged between 10 and 50 from undertaking the journey to the Shabrimala temple because this amounts to exclusion of certain individuals from the larger community. So when that happens, the courts, we believe, ought to intervene and that really has to be the test which it should adopt. But of course, all these three options are open to the court when it ultimately begins hearing arguments. And it will be quite interesting to see where it takes us. One can only hope that it doesn't set us back in terms of the jurisprudence that has developed over these last 70 years. Because whatever we might say about some of the other areas in which the Supreme Court has ruled on, on matters of freedom of religion, the court has largely been progressive. Okay, Surit, that was fascinating. I think we'll keep uh, we'll continue to keep a track on this issue as it develops. But thank you so much for joining me today, and uh, we'll see you soon. My pleasure, Jack. Thank you, Father.